Thank you so much for the opportunity to be with you today. I was passing out as I came in uh, the new brochures for women. We have some up front. If you did not get one, if you'd raise your hand, we'll pass those out. Anybody that did not receive one from me, please raise your hand, and that way they'll be passed out to you. It is good to be with you today, and I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be a part uh, of this uh, service tonight and to be able to uh, present to you a message about the work of the Tennessee Prison Outreach Ministry. I appreciate so much your support. I appreciate all that you do to help make this possible. My actual intent was to make a full presentation about TPOM. I think I had 20-something slides and the projector is out. Uh, and so that's not going to happen tonight. But if you've been speaking as long as I've had, you learn to be flexible and uh, learn how to <laughs> make changes when that is the case. I want to talk to you a little bit as we go on into this presentation to think about how challenging life has been, uh, particularly during the pandemic that we have all experienced. We know what life has been like. We know all the changes we've had to go through. A lot of our congregations have gone through periods of you know, having to where we could not meet in person, uh, had to meet virtually. Uh, this was an experience that we saw in our prisons today. Uh, in Tennessee, we have 14 state prisons. They have been closed uh, for 14 months, uh, and they just reopened uh, the first part of May. So it's been a very challenging time for those that are in prison. In fact, today in Tennessee, we have 95 county jails, and all of those uh, in most cases are still closed uh, to volunteers because of COVID, but thankfully the prisons uh, have been open. And it's been very tough. I was telling uh, one of the men uh, there in the back in the four years I was standing here, uh, there was one prison in Tennessee called South Central Correctional Complex. I had 1,800 men. One time they had 200 that did not have COVID. And so just imagine in that kind of a setting where people are cannot socially distance and how that they're, you know, they're in that kind of environment so packed tightly in. Uh, COVID just uh, spread through the communities. Uh, and many of there were a number of them that lost their lives, a number of officers, correctional officers uh, that also died during this time of COVID. And we also know that uh, this pandemic has changed the world in a lot of ways. If you look at the numbers that we are seeing, uh, we know that drug use has gone up during the pandemic. Uh, we know that suicide rate has gone up during the pandemic. All of these uh, negative numbers that we see, you know, these risk factors that we see in our society have all been impacted by this as people were isolated as they could not visit loved ones, as they could not be with family, as they could not go to nursing homes and see um, their mom or their grandmother that's there, the grandfather. And so it's been just a very challenging time for people. And so it should not be surprising that the rate of depression has gone up. I went this morning to Deberry Prison where I conducted a worship service where we had 15 men. And they went 14 months with not being allowed to worship together, 14 months, where they were, in essence, uh, confined uh, to their cell. And so it's been a very dark time in our society. And I want to share with you this as we go into our Scripture today. We're going to be in the book of Ezekiel, so we're going to look in the Old Testament for a moment. 
And we want to see also a time that there was a lot of discouragement, a time where there did not seem to be a lot of hope in society and in that community. Now let me just give you the background of Ezekiel before we go into this. And we're going to look in chapter 37 in a moment is where we're going to be. But before I read Ezekiel 37, let me just set this up for a moment. So Jehoiakim was uh, Judah, North Israel, uh, had, no, had ceased to exist as a nation. Judah was left. Um, they had become a vassal to Egypt and they had refused to pay their tribute. And so they had set up uh, a kingdom there and it had reached a point to where Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, became very powerful. And they had become what we might call a world empire at that time. And here is the king that had been set up actually by Egypt, who had rebelled against Babylon. And so God had come in to Jehoiakim and then later Jehoiachin, and had taken them off into captivity and taken them to the river in Babylon. And Ezekiel was also taken there, and that is where he was called to be a priest. He was called to be a prophet of God. And as he was a prophet of God, much of Ezekiel's message was all about doom and gloom. <laughs> Zedekiah was set up as a vassal by Nebuchadnezzar, and Zedekiah would reign 11 years, and he was to pay tribute to Nebuchadnezzar, to the king of Babylon, and so they were under their control. But here is Ezekiel, and he is prophesying this message, and it's all about judgment. It's all about God is coming to judge this nation because the nation had worshipped idols. They had worshipped pagan images. They had turned their backs on God throughout their history, different times. They had been involved in even child sacrifice, uh, worshipped Molech. They had done all kinds of evil in the sight of God. And God was just frustrated with them. And God was put out. And so Ezekiel said, as he's there in Babylon, as he's taken captive, as he's speaking to the exiles, those are those who would become exiles, those who had been taken out of their land and were exiled in a foreign country. He lets them know judgment is from God. And in all of this despair and all of this hopelessness, somewhat like, not exactly like, but somewhat similar to the hopelessness that many people experienced in the pandemic, Ezekiel gives a message of hope, a message of hope. And that is what we're going to see here in Ezekiel 37. And so here is verse 1. I want to read this. The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. And He caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry." And he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. So here is this image of God's people as they are scattered. Here is a point of where uh, they are nothing but a valley of dry bones. And when you reach the stage of nothing but dry bones, that is a stage where, you know, there is no hope. You know, we hear about people being in the hospital. We hear about people, you know, dying and then being brought back or they stop breathing, their heart stops and they're brought back. But here is a point of where they're nothing but a valley of bones. And so the question is, is there hope 
in this situation? Is there hope in the Smith County Jail where there are people that are sitting there that are dealing with meth addiction? Is there hope for people in our state prisons who are dealing with fentanyl, which is a deadly drug that people, uh, many people are overdosing on right now? Is there hope for women that are caught up in abuse and abandonment, and because of that, they have a turn to drugs to try to cope with their own trauma in life? Is there hope in that situation? It is very common uh, for me to receive phone calls from family members of loved ones sitting in jail or prison. I received a call just this past week, a grandmother, uh, Mr. Snow, my granddaughter is in the Sumner County Jail. My granddaughter has three children. My granddaughter has uh, had a problem with drug addiction. And she's been in their lives and out of their lives and in their lives and out of their lives. And more times she's been out than she's been in. And she said the Sumner County Jail is going to release her um, this Thursday at midnight, 1201, which is pretty common in our county jails, release people at midnight. And said, is there, is there any way you can get her a T-Pong? Is there any hope? That story is one, that phone call is one that I receive frequently. I've got a son. I've got a daughter. I've got a grandson. I've got a nephew. I've got a niece who is sitting in jail, who is sitting in prison, who has been dealing with drug addiction, who has experienced trauma in their life. They had a very hard life, no doubt. But here they are sitting there and wondering, is there any hope at all? Was there any hope for Judah in a situation where Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon would come in and would surround the city, would break down the walls, would destroy the temple, would take the articles of the temple back to his own God that he would worship and would take all of the people and scatter them throughout his territory? Would there be any hope at all? Can these bones live? It is a very difficult situation when you're dealing with a situation and a matter of feeling hopeless. One of our house shepherds, his name is Jason Odom, and Jason Odom uh, is one who has gone through our program and now he graduated our program. He's working at Lee Company. He's doing really well. And now he's a house shepherd living there managing some of the guys uh, in our program. When Jason graduated on the graduation night, uh, we have where they come up and they receive a certificate and they get up and make a speech. And Jason starts telling his story that he had spent his life as a drug dealer selling fentanyl, most deadly drug that's out there today. And selling uh, this medication that was made as a prescription, it's a super powerful opioid that if a person takes it, you know, it uh, often causes them to stop breathing, uh, can cause them to have a heart attack. It causes them often to overdose. And he was one who sold this. And he is one that was responsible for people overdosing. And as he told his story, he gets up, and I only a couple of occasions have I seen men who receive their certificates start bawling. 
and I mean the tears just flowed down his face. And he said, I just, he said, I had the closest thing to the Apostle Paul known as Saul experience. He said in my cell, when I recognized what I had done, he said, I just got down on my knees and just cried my eyes out for all of the things that I had done in life. And now, like Paul, who could not change his past, could not undo what he had done, is now using his life to make a difference. And at that moment, he saw it being totally hopeless. He saw it as being there's no chance for a change in my life. There's no chance that anything could be different. Here I am. I've sold these drugs that resulted in people overdosing and some people dying. Here I am sitting in prison. How will it ever get any better? How will it ever get any better? It is a terrible feeling to go through life without any hope. Judah experienced a case of hopelessness. And so Ezekiel hears these words, Can dry bones live? And he said it to me in verse 4, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. So here's this vision that he has. In this vision he sees this big valley of dry bones. Bones are scattered all around. Here it seems so hopeless. And maybe some of you have some loved ones. Maybe you have somebody in your family that you feel like, you know, they've just been this way for a long time and I just don't see any chance for change. And it seems hopeless. And so the word of the Lord speaks to them and he says, Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live, verse 5. Uh, put sinews on you and you'll bring flesh on you and I will cover you and breathe on you and you shall live and then you shall know that I am the Lord. Now, this passage of Scripture here is not just a passage talking about um, the ultimate resurrection, although you might could find some allusion to that. But it's really talking about how that God is saying to Judah, a nation that's been scattered, that God hasn't given up on you yet, that God has not abandoned you, and that you will come back. And we know in, Israel, in Judah's history that they did come back. That Now certainly they were not as great as they were before, but they would come back under men like Nehemiah, you know, and rebuild the walls. Uh, Ezra the scribe, they would come back. Uh, Zerubbabel, they would go back and they would rebuild the temple. Uh, and they would come back to some degree as a nation. But he was letting them know in the midst of all of this despair that there was hope. That there was hope for a better future for their life. And I'm sure in that moment, in that crisis that they were experiencing, in that time of where you've been taken out of your country, you've been carried to a foreign land, and then not shortly after he would start prophesying, Nebuchadnezzar would come back and would finish <laughs> Judah and would wipe it out and destroy everything and carry off the articles of the temple and destroy the temple. I'm sure it seemed hopeless. I'm sure it seemed that way. But God said, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, well, Lord, only, only you know. <laughs> only you know <laughs> if that is possible. And he said, prophesy to the bones and let life come back upon them again. One of the neat things that I will share with you as um, I go along in my presentation tonight is thinking about the women's house uh, that we have we started the women's house. We started construction on this um, right around January of 2020, right before the pandemic hit in March. And so we broke ground on this project, um, and we still had a whole lot of money to raise 
uh, and we had all these great plans. We were going to, you know, finish raising the money to get all this project built. And uh, then the pandemic hit uh, in mid-March, and we began to be very concerned. (laughs) We had received a report uh, that said that, you know, ministries, you know, like TPOM and nonprofits and others, they're going to have a really difficult time. A lot of people lost their jobs. People were laid off. Uh, the economy tanked for a while. You know that. Some of you experienced that as well. Uh, and we began to wonder, you know, would there be hope for us to be able to finish this project? I'm thankful that we had our volunteers that actually, and all of our donors that stepped up, churches that stepped up to help make this possible. Actually, we had our best fundraising year ever in 2020 uh, in the midst of the most difficult year that we had. And so we were able to build this beautiful home. If you'll see that uh, on the pictures on the inside, uh, it is a a $1.7 million project uh, that we were involved in, uh, 10,000 square feet, uh, where we have a place for 16 women at one time, for two house managers. Uh, we have an entire basement down there where we have uh, offices and classroom space and a commercial kitchen. Uh, and so we were able to complete this. And, um, you know, and there were times I thought, man, I don't know if we're going to be able to do this or not. This is really going to be a tough time. But we saw the hope that we had. And so we opened up the house and we opened this up and it actually finished in December of 2020. And so we reached out to the Tennessee Department of Corrections and told them that we had the women's house uh, complete. Uh, it took them two months to get us on the approved list because they lost our application for some reason. Uh, but now we have lots of women that are coming into the program. Uh, we have eight women that are in there now, and we have received, I think, 45 uh, more applications from women that are coming out of prison and are coming to the program. One of the neat things that we had was the grandmother that I mentioned that called me that was released at midnight. Um, So I told her, I said, well, we can't get her an application because she's getting out. There's not enough time to get her an application. So have her call when she comes out. And so she called on Friday. Her father brought her to me, brought her to T-Pom, interviewed her. And her father had been dealing with 18 years of, he'd been in addiction himself, 18 years of recovery. Didn't know whether his daughter wanted the program or not. Sat down with her. We talked to her. We interviewed her. Drug screened her. She was negative uh, coming out. And she said, you know, this is what I want. And when her father heard that, his father, she did, he started crying. Just crying. So much wanting his daughter to have hope. So back to Ezekiel 37 is this message of hope. And so look what he says. He said, it looked and the flesh came on them and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. And he said unto me, prophesy out of the breath, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on the slain, that they may live. And he prophesied and commanded me, and the breath came on them, and they lived. And they stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. And he said, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, Our bones are dry, our hope is lost. And we ourselves are cut off. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, my people, I will open up your graves. I will cause you to come up from your graves, bring you to the land of Israel. And then you shall know that I am the Lord who have opened up the graves, O my people, and have brought you up from the graves. And I will pour out my spirit on you, and you will live, and you will live in your own land. 
And so here is this situation. Here is all of this despair. And so he speaks to them. And so he, they breathe on them. And so God's Spirit comes upon them in this vision that he has. And so flesh comes upon them. The tendons come upon them. They come back together. You now he hears this noise of rattling together and breathes in them life. And the Spirit of the Lord comes upon them and they become a great army of the Lord. God was not finished with them yet. Let me tell you about a few of the women uh, that are in our house. So on the uh, front cover there is Michelle, African-American. Michelle spent 15 years in prison for the manufacturing of meth. 15 years in prison. Separated from her children because of her addiction. And certainly she had a lot of trauma and a lot of abuse, not an excuse, just a reality. And so she ended up deep in depression and the manufacturing of drugs and found herself in prison. So last week, Michelle, who is just a really an outstanding role model, very spiritual woman, she came into the office. She'd been out. She had her daughter who was 16 years old uh, coming by for a visit. They were arm in arms. Uh, and her daughter had a smile on her face. And, you know, here's Michelle making so much progress, living a life of recovery, getting back in her children's life and doing something different. One next to her uh, is Jennifer. And Jennifer came to our program. She's been with us now right at three months. And she is another one that dealt with addiction, dealt with drug abuse problem, and she has several small children as well. And so she's got her life together. She is making so much progress. Um, one day she came by the office. We had one of our case managers took her to take her driving test. And so she came back in and she had her driver's license. So we took a picture of that. And she was just so smiling that she had it back. And then she just recently went back to her home county and she came back and she had regained, went before a judge and regained visitation with her children. And it's her goal to continue to make progress in her life, to get her children back, to be able to continue to be that example to them and to make a difference. Situations that seemed hopeless. Adrian, which I do not have a picture of her, um, but... Adrian came to us about six weeks ago. Adrian uh, was college educated out in Knoxville, uh, had a professional job, got involved in an abusive relationship with a male. Because of that and because of uh, all that she was going through and, and how that he was physically abusing her, uh, she made some very poor choices. Uh, he pressured her to get involved in identity theft. Uh, and helped to fraudulently run up some charges of somebody else, that she pretended to be somebody else. Because of that, she found herself at Tennessee Prison for Women. She enrolled, and I'll tell you about this, in the Lipscomb Life Program. Now, what Lipscomb University has, which I think is really outstanding, is that they have a college program at the women's prison. And so the women can work on their associates, their bachelor's degree, or their master's degree. And so when they take courses, the students of Lipscomb that enroll with the courses go to the women's prison and take the classes with the women who were there that meet the qualifications. 
those who obviously meet the academic standards that Lipscomb would have. And so Adrian, she uh, just recently came to us, and so she is now re-enrolled at Lipscomb, and in December she's going to finish her master's degree in Christian spirituality. And so here she is <laughs> making changes in her life, making progress in her life, being able to complete her master's degree now, and having a new life. But she, when she was sitting in that jail cell, that prison cell at Tennessee Prison for Women, it all seemed hopeless. It all seemed like there was no chance for things to get better. But yet we see the changes of men and women who come to our program who are coming out of incarceration and coming for a new life. Now, let me just tell you what we do uh, when we take people. Now, we do not just take anybody from jail or prison. We don't. We take and we look for people. We have an application. We look for their disciplinary records. Uh, we, you know, we ask for all of that information, what classes they've done, what things they're doing in prison, and then we do an interview for them. Because we are looking for people who are motivated to do something different with their life. People who have a desire to live in a different way. I tell the folks when they come to TPOM, they come through the doors and you know we're expecting them. They've applied to us and we've interviewed them. We've accepted them. We know when they're getting out. We know when we're coming. We pick them up you know, down at the bus station in Nashville, wherever they're coming from. And I tell them when they come in the door, I said, your situation may seem hopeless, but if you have a motivation to do something different with your life, change can happen. And we can help you and we can work with you. I understand that you're working with some women here uh, in this community in a transitional type of living situation that have been through abuse and have been through drug addiction. I understand that you're having some success with that and I commend you for that. Commend you for that because it is so widespread. But if a person is willing to look to God and willing to, you know, say, I may, sh I may not know what to do, but I'm willing to do something different. There is hope. I had one of our guys that graduated a program recently, and I was uh, teaching a class, and he spoke up to me and he said, uh, Mr. Snow, he said, there's a reason why I'm at T-Palm. He said, I am here to learn something different. He said, everything I've decided to do in my life has caused me problems. Every decision, everything that I thought was right has resulted in me having trials and troubles. And he said, so I'm just here to say my way's not working. <laughs> and I'm here to try a different route. And so he's a graduate of our program and he is doing well. He's off in Knoxville now uh, working a job there. And we're seeing people who are coming out and they're able to have a new life, just like in Ezekiel's day, although his message may have been uh, much of it pessimistic. In fact, most of the chapters of Ezekiel are all about judgment and God's punishment and God's wrath upon people uh, who are uh, rebelled against Him. The prophets generally end up with a message of hope that things can get better if only we will turn our life over to God. 
And as long as we're willing to open up ourselves and be willing to say, God, I want to do things your way. And so go back to our text here as we go through. Just kind of wrap up here in a few minutes. In Ezekiel 37, notice what he says. And so verse 14, I will put my spirit in you and you will live in a place in your own land and you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken it. And the word of the Lord came and said to me that this is true. And so we know that God had a plan for them. And we see more of a fulfillment of this. I don't have time to go into it today, but in Acts chapter 2, when after the resurrection of Christ, after He ascended after His 40 days, that as they were gathered uh, there in Jerusalem, as they were gathered in an upper room, and of course as Peter would be there, and as the Holy Spirit would come upon them and would fall upon them, and they would speak with other tongues, and Peter would preach, and they would cry out, what shall we do? And Peter would tell them to repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit fell upon them, and they began to see a change, and it brought a change in the world. You might wonder today, you might say, well, you know, is there, is there hope? You know, we see a world that often seems dark. We see a world today where crime has gone up across the United States. No doubt, in the past 12 months it has. We see a world where drug use has gone up and connected with drug use there's crime. We see a world where many people are overdosing, ending up in hospitals or the morgue. We're seeing a world where people have turned to everything We've even seen today in a world after this post-pandemic where a number of our folks and a lot of our congregations are not even coming back. We're seeing that in a lot of places right now. There, there's no doubt that's the case. Numbers are not what they were before the pandemic, as you know, and so we've seen a change there. And we look at all of this and we go, oh, it sure seems hopeless, doesn't it? Sure seems hopeless. What am I going to do? My granddaughter's in that jail. My granddaughter's on drugs. My son is sitting there in the Trousdale prison serving a 10-year sentence. We see a society that's broken. We see a society that often doesn't have a lot of hope. We see a society that in essence, I think about life as a circle and you put self at the center and what people are trying to do is they're trying to find the meaning of life in all the things of the world. But all they find is brokenness and emptiness is what they find. And so we say here in 2021, with our church numbers down, with crime up, with drug use up, <laughs> with suicides up, with depression up, mental illness up, and we say, is there any hope? Can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, God, you know. Turning to God, giving our life to the Lord. God can bring a change that we can't ever imagine. As I close, I've got one guy in our house that I want to tell you about before I close. I don't have his picture here, but his name is Murphy. William Murphy. We call him Murphy. That's, that's what he went by in prison. Murphy. Murphy was on death row at Riverman. Death row. And I've been on death row. There's not a lot of hope there. I was asked one time to go see a guy right before he was executed and to pray with him. That's a tough experience. 
Murphy was on death row. He was able to get his case back before a judge to reconsider some facts that were not considered initially. And so they took him off of death row, still had first-degree murder conviction, but they gave him a life sentence instead of death row. And so Murphy went to the general population. Murphy served 28 years in prison. He went up for the parole board, told him he hadn't served enough time. So he went back two years later, went for the parole board. Stood there before, and uh, there was, it's all through camera, and you're being interviewed. And it was by a woman, and... Uh, they ask you several questions, you know, what you, they, of course, they know what you did. What did you do? What did you learn? Have you changed? She got her glasses. She threw them off, and she had read all his files, and he was really discouraged. And she said, I'm going to recommend parole. So Murphy made parole. Murphy came to our house. Murphy graduated our program. Murphy is our house shepherd on the other side. We have two men's side. He's the house shepherd on the other side. He works for a guy who owns 36 McDonald's in Tennessee and Kentucky. He's in charge of all maintenance, and he's also in charge of security. A guy on death row is now in charge of security <laughs> at McDonald's. And every Sunday morning, Murphy's at the Northside Church of Christ, Bible class, worship, and he's an example. He is an example to the guys. And as we had, I'll close with this last story about Murphy. We have in our house, we have Narcan. And Narcan is, is what you give to somebody if they overdose on opioids. And if you give it to them quickly enough, it can save their life. So we had a guy named Brandon in our house. Brandon was really depressed. So it was early in the morning. He'd gone to one of his coworkers and he was depressed. And the guy gave him some opioids that he didn't know were laced with fentanyl. We've got cameras, and so I went back, looked at it on the camera, watched it. Brandon had taken these opioids that were laced in fentanyl, and he was sitting there eating his breakfast, and all of a sudden he passed out in the house, and he started turning blue. The first case we've had of overdose in the actual men's house. So a couple of guys that are in the house, they did the prison technique. They were going to try to drag him up to the stairs and throw him in the shower. And Murphy said, no, get him down quickly. Murphy ran and got the Narcan, gave him the Narcan. Murphy called 911. Murphy started doing CPR, and Brandon came back. Brandon went into rehab for 30 days. Now Brandon's back in the house. And Brandon is alive, young man with children, because Murphy saved his life. It took the ambulance 13 minutes to get there. If it hadn't been for Murphy, that young man would have died in our house. When Murphy was sitting there on death row, when he was there, I have no doubt it looked hopeless. Imagine being on death row. How many people get off death row? How many folks get out after being on death row? How many people on death row get to work for McDonald's and be in charge of security? For over 30 stores. How many folks get out off death row and use their life and to save somebody else's? He's the best example we have in our house. That's the kind of person he is. Can these bones live? Oh God, you know. If you're here tonight, you may have a son or a daughter or a granddaughter. Some of you probably do. That's been struggling with addiction for a long time. And you wonder, is there any hope? Is there any hope? There is to look to God, to turn our life over to Him. So if you're here tonight, you need the invitation it's always extended. The same Jesus that saved Murphy on death row is the same Jesus that saves us. We need the same Savior who died for us, who made salvation possible, who gave His life upon a cross so that we can have hope and that we can have forgiveness. So if you're here tonight and you need to respond to the invitation, it's always extended to give you life to Christ, be buried with Christ in baptism. 
or then to turn from your sin. As I close, the first Sunday, the first Sunday I went back to River Bend to preach was just two weeks ago. As I close, this will be my last story. I went back to to preach there. They had not had service for 14 months at River Bend. And when I got there, they said, Thomas, they said, we got the baptistry full. We're going to have a baptism. And the guy that I baptized was not taught by me, but he was taught the gospel by the men in the prison. They had brought this guy to Christ, giving hope, giving hope to others. That's what this mission is all about. If you need to respond, will you come now while we stand and sing?